More you talk now. I'm back with Luke Zamperini, and we are talking about um, Unbroken, the story of his father, Louis Zamperini. Luke, welcome back to Utah. Thank you very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here again. You know, what fascinates me, I had the great privilege of meeting your dad a number of years ago. Uh, we went into a couple of juvenile prisons together, and it seems like there's enough material about his life to put in a book or two, maybe even a movie or two. Well, it's funny you should mention that. Uh, actually, my, my dad wrote his uh, uh, autobiography in 1956. It was called Devil at My Heels. And uh, he, was, he sold that, the movie rights to Universal Studios in 1957. Hmm. And they bought it to make it a vehicle for their new up-and-coming movie star, a guy named Tony Curtis. Okay. And, uh, but the film was never made. Uh, Curtis went off and made Spartacus with Kirk Douglas and then... They never got around to my So this film was just sitting there for just decades. There for all these, these years and years and years. Um, about uh, 1997, uh, a, a CBS sports producer who was, uh, you know, uh, working on, uh, you know, some ar- archives for an old Army-Navy game from the 1940s came across my dad's story in the New York Times in, in the 1945 talking about, you know, what had happened to him in the war and all that stuff. And uh, so he thought, oh, an Olympian helped by the Japanese. And it was, this guy was slated to uh, do vignettes for the Nagano Olympics in 1998 uh, for CBS Sports. Hmm, okay. So he said, I got to do this guy's story. Sure. So um, he finds my dad alive. And, and of course, my dad was a willing storyteller and had uh, all kinds of uh, materials to share with him. Uh, and... You know these 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 vignettes are usually about a minute, half to two minutes long, mm-hmm. so that you know which amateur athlete you never heard of to root for in the sure. Olympics. And so this thing, as they look deeper into the story, it, these thing kept getting longer and longer. And finally, uh, the the head of CBS Sports had told him, "I said, okay, you've got you you, you can do thirty four minutes. We're going to run it." Uh, between the program 60 minutes and then the closing ceremonies for the, the Olympics that year. Nice slot. And so, yeah, great slot. Yeah, great uh, slot. You know, I was in Japan with him uh, uh, for the Olympics uh, that that year, and we were we were supposed to meet with his prison guards, and uh, we can get into that later. But uh, at any rate, we got back to the hotel room, phones ringing off the hook, everybody in Hollywood wants to do the story. Hmm. So... Big switch from a number of years ago. Yeah, it just kind of he faded into obscurity uh, yeah. outside of the you know, the Christian world where people were, were very aware of his story, um, and so now there's there's all this this uh, interest in doing it. The Universal discovered they still had the rights to the film, and th- deals are starting to be made. And then something happened. He got a phone call from someone named Laura Hillenbrand, who wrote a book called Sea Biscuit. And she had discovered my dad's story while she was researching Seabiscuit because Seabiscuit and Louise Amparini were in the sports headlines at the same time. Well, and Seabiscuit, of course, became a film. Yeah, Seabiscuit became a film, a film made by Universal Studios. So Universal found out that Laura was doing his story. They said, stop, we're going to wait for her book and then we're going to make the deal with her because we already already have a deal with her. Sure. And that would be the, the basis of the movie would be based on her book, which was a best-selling book when it came out, kind of all unbroken. And now it took her seven years to write the book. Part of it's that a is, long time. Part of that is because she was a meticulous researcher and wouldn't print anything that he told her that she couldn't corroborate. 
she asked for the contact information for about 30 people he knew that, that were witness to his athletic and his wartime events. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but she also suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome and vertigo. So she, she couldn't Ooh. write for three months at a time, and she'd just be flat on her back, dizzy. At, at any rate, so when she, you know, they made the deal with Laura to tell the story. Okay, so the book Unbroken becomes this. Bestseller. I mean, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for five years in this mm. one category or another. And so they make the film Unbroken based on the book. But, of course, there was too much story to tell in two hours. They, so the, the film ended up being two hours long and only covered his life up to the point that he gets back from the war. Directed by Angelina Jolie. Uh, she did a magnificent job at fabulous the, film. Yeah, and uh, of course she uh, she was not afraid to dive right into the torment of the prison camps that he was in and the relationship he had with Sergeant uh, Watanabe, uh, who was nicknamed the Bird. The Bird. But she was unable to tell the whole story due to time constraints, and uh, of course, in uh, from what I understand. In the filmmaking world, time is your worst enemy. So if you don't have yeah. enough time, you don't have enough money, and you can't finish the whole story. So the studio, at the end of it, realized that, you know what? There's enough for another film. And so the same producer who piloted this thing for 14 years through Universal wow. to get it to the point where it was made. You know, That's a long journey. It, it is. Well, we waited 57 years for the first film to be made from the time he, he got the deal in 56. And so now the same producer put a team together to tell the rest of the story, which is the film Unbroken Path Redemption that will be released September 14th of this year. Which we're very excited about for a variety of reasons. <laughs> and I'll mention this right now. Uh, part of the Utah crew is actually in the film. Uh, I'm in the film as well as Katie. Uh, so we uh, had a great time watching the screening. And, and it's interesting to see yourself up there on that big screen like that. The guy sitting next to me, I don't know if I told you this, Luke, kept nudging me going, that's you. That's you. That's you. It is me. So you'll have to, we want to encourage you to check out the film because it is a powerful story. And I'm excited that the second half of the story was made. There's so much in your dad's story to talk about, you know, perseverance and determination and, and the struggling and surviving and hope and forgiveness. Yeah. And what Path to Redemption really focuses on is his struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. I know there are there are just hundreds of thousands of people that are so affected many today. by that today. Yes, and of course they didn't know what it was uh, at the end of World War II. They they, they called it shell shock. They didn't know how to treat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so this film explores his uh, the effect of the PTSD on him, how it caused him to start self-medicating, how his his attempt to get back into world-class shape to compete in the forty-eight. Uh, Olympics uh, failed, and oh. just, he was just spiraling out of control and getting to the point where he wouldn't remember how he got home or where he left his car or who he'd been in a fight with or, or anything like that. And yet, and here's this hero. After, what was it, two years he was held in uh, the Japanese prison camp? He or? was uh, declared dead 13 months after his plane crash in the ocean, and he spent 27 months in Japanese prison camp system. So it was... It was about two and a half years of him wow. missing, almost three years. What a horrible thing for your, your grandparents to have to go through and, and your sister and, and, and other relatives at the time. And yet here's this, this hero. I mean, it, it, the whole story is miraculous. And yet he's spiraling out of control. 
This, this is true. And it got to the point where, you know, he got married and, and uh, uh, my parents had my sister and she was born in January 1949. It got to the point where my mom was given up and she's, she just couldn't take it any longer. Hmm. She announced to him that she was going to get a divorce and, and move back to Florida. But something happened in the meantime. There was another couple in the, uh, in the apartment building they lived in in Hollywood who had invited them to come here, a new uh, preacher at a revival meeting in downtown Los Angeles. And, of course, my dad didn't want to go at all. But my mom went. Hmm. And she came home that night, and she uh, told him that she decided not to divorce him because of the newfound joy in her heart that she had experienced when she went to this, this revival meeting. And she said, you need to... You, you know, I'm not going to divorce you, but the deal is you got to come with me to hear this guy preach tomorrow night. And he finally agreed to go. He said, but under this condition, when it gets to the point that I'm being offended by this guy telling me I'm a sinner, which I don't need to hear that, we're leading. And she goes, okay, that's fine. That's, that's fine. As long as you go with me. So they go, and they, they, you know, he gets out of the car, and there's this big, ginormous circus tent with a big banner on the side saying, Billy Graham. This is Billy Graham's Los Angeles Crusade of 1949, the crusade that put Billy Graham on the map. So my dad walks up and sees a picture of the guy. I go, well, this isn't the idea I have of a revivalist preacher in my mind. This guy is like athletic, good-looking guy. You know? mm. So he says, so well, I'm going to give him a chance. So huh. they go in and sit down, and sure enough, gets to the point where, you know, Billy's teaching something like uh, all of uh, sin and come short of the glory of God. And he says, that's it grabs her by the hand, and we're gone. And says, don't you ever take me to a place like that again. And she says, okay, Louis, but I just want to remind you that I'm not divorcing you because of the newfound <laughs> relationship I have with Jesus Christ as my Savior. So she talks him into going back again. Okay, but the same deal is, is in place. When I get offended, we're gone. And she says, okay. so Kind of a one-track mind. The offense, yeah. and I'm out of here. I'm gone. It's um, it. I'm history. And so, sure enough, the same thing happens. Gets to the point in the sermon where he's feeling the pressure, and he stands up, grabs her by the hand, and he starts making his way to the aisle. And then he hears uh, the Reverend Graham saying something to the effect of, when people come to the end of their rope and have no place else to turn, that's when they turn to God to seek salvation from whatever situation they're in. And that reminded him of a prayer he had on the raft. Now, when you're floating in on life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean for seven weeks, you got a lot of time on your hand. I, we could spend an hour talking about oh, absolutely. the raft, but essentially there was, this took him back to a prayer that he'd had. They, they had been without food or water on this thing. This, this raft had no provisions. If you go without water for three days, you start to die. Five okay. days, you're dead especially in a in a, a tropical climate or in, this was equatorial pacific there've been 7 days no water now what's what's interesting to me luke is you know we say no water they're floating in water but they can't drink well, it yeah water you can drink but, yes. so there is no way for them to make drinkable water out of the seawater you drink seawater you go crazy okay so the only way they can they can get water once they ran out of the the few measly half pint tins that they had was wait for it to rain. So obviously it hadn't rained in seven days. And so he's not a religious guy at all, but he knew that he needed to pray to God at this point. So he said, God, if you get me home from this alive, I will seek you and serve you my entire life. Interesting. Within minutes, 
Within minutes, you can see the dark cloud on the horizon. The rains are coming. Huh. And they open their mouth and they're just drinking in all this heavenly water falling from the sky. Unbelievable. And they're, they're, you know, they've got their, their tins out there. They're trying to funnel water into these tins that hang on to them. And so when he heard these words coming out of Graham's mouth, it reminded him of that moment. And hmm. as Laura Hillenbrand put it so poetically in the book, he could feel the rain on his face as that prayer was being answered. In the tent. In the tent. In he, the tent. He could feel that. And instead of turning left and going out of the back of the tent, he found himself going down towards the stage. And he told me, he says, I just felt really bad because obviously God had taken care of his part of the bargain because Louis Zamperini came home alive. But he said, I didn't take care of my part huh. of the bargain. So he went down there. They have counselors by the stage to lead you through the sinner's prayer. And, I, I mean, you know, his post-traumatic stress disorder that he'd been suffering with, it had been driving him to this point where the subject of the book, Unbroken, was finally broken. He was broken that night. He said when he, he got off his knees, he knew he was done getting drunk, he knew he was done fighting, and he knew he'd forgiven his prison guards, the bird. So he had this incredible burden lifted off of his shoulder. Now, his PTSD actually began the moment he met the bird. The bird punched this guy out every day of his life in the prison camp. The bird's job was to break him, to make mm. him do propaganda broadcasts. He wouldn't do it. But because he was a defiant, vengeful Italian guy, <laughs> you know, his natural uh, inclination was to strike back at the sure. bird. And he knew he couldn't do it because they would kill him. So he internalized all that hatred he had for him. For all those months? Yes. For five years, he'd been having this recurring nightmare where the bird comes to him with a kendo stick or a belt with a big buckle or beating him with his hands, but being beaten by the bird every night. Over and, and over. These dreams would always end up with him choking the life out of the bird and he'd wake up in a cold mm. sweat. And this is how the PTSD was manifesting itself in him. When he got off his knees in that Billy Graham meeting, he went home that night, and it was the first night in five years he didn't have that dream. He was healed from his PTSD immediately. Well, and, and so many people, as we said earlier, struggle with this. And the hatred, how many people, I've forgotten how many people I've talked to who want to hurt somebody who has hurt them. There's so much hurt. And, and the bitterness that people struggle with. Your dad went through all of that, and he found a way out. He found hope. He found, he found a new life. He he did. the The first thing he found, though, was that he was forgiven himself by his Lord and Savior for all the rotten things he'd done in his life, and then he was able to turn around and forgive others. He knew that principle needed to be to be done there. And, you know, and you might ask, how does that happen? How does someone, how can you forgive someone who's wronged you that badly? Yeah. You know, how does this work? And my dad would tell you that with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Luke, we need to have a continuing conversation. Continuing, you and I could probably be here for days, weeks, who knows how long, talking about this issue of uh, the transformation in your dad's life, how other people can experience a changed life, especially those who are younger, those who are, are really bearing the brunt of what's going on in our culture today. So thanks again for being on Utah. Steve, it's my pleasure. I'll come back anytime. Utah Radio.